Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to a new report by the Sentencing Project, the number of people serving life sentences in U.S. prisons is at an all-time high. Nearly 162,000 people are serving a life sentence, or one out of every nine people in prison. An additional 44,300 people are serving virtual life sentences of 50 years or more. Incorporating that category, the total population serving a life or virtual life sentence was over 206,000 in 2016. This number represents 13.9% of the prison population, or one out of every seven people behind bars. The broad use of life sentences in the U.S. places it in stark contrast against carceral practices in other nations. In Indiana, 107 people are currently serving a sentence of life with parole, 123 are serving life without parole. Over 3,500 are serving a virtual life sentence. Political prisoner Chelsea Manning has just been released from prison this week. On Wednesday, she left the Fort Leavenworth Military Prison where she had served seven years of her 35-year sentence. In 2013, Manning was convicted of 20 charges, among them theft, computer fraud, and violations of the Espionage Act after leaking documents that exposed military misconduct and abuse in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Guantanamo Bay. Although the current administration has expressed outrage about her release, supporters applaud her courage and resilience in the face of the abuse and violence she faced while behind bars. Oscar Lopez Rivera, a former Puerto Rican nationalist leader, was released this week after 36 years in custody. Now 74 years old, Lopez Rivera had served decades in prison for a series of bombings in the 1970s. Throughout his trial, he identified himself as an anti-colonialist combatant and argued that he could not be prosecuted by the U.S. government. In 1999, Lopez Rivera was offered conditional clemency by President Bill Clinton, which he refused. Earlier this year, President Obama commuted his sentence, allowing him to return to Puerto Rico where he finished his sentence on house arrest. On Wednesday, a crowd of supporters gathered outside of his house in celebration of his release. He will also be honored at this year's Puerto Rican Day Parade in New York City. Now we have a statement from the supporters of Brescia Meadows, whose story can be heard in Kite Line episode 37. The statement, dating May 8th, reads, 15-year-old domestic violence survivor Brescia Meadows was offered a plea deal at a pretrial hearing this morning at the Trumbull County Juvenile Court in Ohio. While the details of the proposed deal have not been finalized, our understanding of the terms is that Brescia will be under state control for a total of 18 months. This includes nine months that she's already spent behind bars and an additional nine months of incarceration in a, quote, treatment facility. Brescia's attorney hopes that Brescia will be transferred from juvenile detention to the treatment center by May 22nd at the latest. A pretrial hearing is scheduled for May 22nd. Brescia's record, as it relates to the case, would be sealed on her 18th birthday. Without a plea deal, Brescia would face an aggravated murder charge for defending herself and her mother against the unrelenting abuse of her father, Jonathan Meadows. A conviction for aggravated murder could result in Brescia remaining incarcerated until she turns 21. While the Free Brescia campaign believes that Brescia should have access to affordable health care services that will support her well-being, we contend that care should not be offered in the context of punishment. Based on Brescia's earlier statements that her time in the treatment facility allowed her more access to her family, we are hopeful that the treatment facility will at least be an improvement from juvenile detention. However, we maintain that being forced to be at a facility is not freedom and is not care. 
It is also unclear if Brisha's family would be forced to pay for mental health services ordered by the court in the context of continued incarceration. We also reject the manipulation of plea deals that force people to submit to imprisonment out of fear of longer sentences, regardless of their circumstances. Marissa Alexander, a black woman domestic violence survivor who was criminalized for self-defense, was bullied into taking a three-year plea deal with the threat of a 60-year sentence behind bars, although she fully contended that she was innocent of the charges against her. Threats of prolonged sentences that force people into submitting to state confinement is a form of manipulative state violence that must end. Finally, Brisha's plea deal does nothing to transform the systemic failures that led to her imprisonment. Police and family services failed to support Brisha, essentially forcing her back into her violent home. How will these systems account for these failures, including offering restitution to Brisha Meadows and her family? What transformations will be secured to prevent the same failures from impacting the lives of other young people? How will we, as communities, account for our failure to protect children like Brisha and ensure that fewer children are faced with these desperate choices? We demand that all survivors have the right to defend their lives, especially black girls and other youth of color who are targeted for punishment and criminalization. We also demand systemic change and accountability to truly support the lives of young people, including fully funded healthcare, affordable housing, and all of the social and economic resources it will take to truly reduce and transform all forms of gender violence. We believe wholeheartedly that Brisha's case would not have come this far without the mass mobilization of thousands of supporters in Warren, across the United States, and around the world. Young people are regularly punished and brutalized by the system behind closed doors, and Brisha's case is a classic example of the ways our society punishes children for its own failures. Fortunately, Brisha's case also provides an example of the powerful impact of mass action, including how to interrupt the normalization of violence against black children and the violence of child incarceration. The Free Brisha campaign will continue to push for Brisha's freedom until she is truly free. We ask all who support her to do the same. It is crucial that we continue to act in solidarity with Brisha and her family, and that we continue to raise the critical issues that her case illuminates. We must love and protect all children, especially the most vulnerable to violence, and we must defend our young people against the violence of incarceration. This week's episode of KiteLine is devoted to the story of Patrick Persley. Patrick Persley's carceral nightmare began in June 1993, when a jailhouse snitch named him as the culprit in a robbery and shooting two months before. This informant was facing multiple felony charges at the time and received $2,600 in reward money. Persley went on to be convicted and sentenced to life without parole despite serious inconsistencies in the forensics and a lack of other evidence. This week, he shared with KiteLine the story of how he fought for and won his release. 1994, I was wrongfully convicted of the murder of Andy Asher. I was innocent. I had never seen or met Andy Asher ever. I was sent to prison with a natural life sentence. During my trial, I had presented my own ballistic expert who on many occasions worked for the state and worked for the Fed, Uh, but because he was an independent expert, he he did not have the credibility, I guess you could say, that now that he was testifying for a defendant. So I was convicted. I was sent to prison with natural life. I was a repeat offender, so, you know, who's going to believe me? You know, some, you know, young guy in the streets, you know, former gangbanger, the whole, the whole thing. So it was a complete uphill battle for me to be able to fight my way back, so to speak. So I knew that I needed additional gun testing because I knew that the rest of the evidence was just basically discredited. The heart of the state's case, the linchpin, so to speak, was the ballistics evidence. And I needed to um, I needed to 
destroy that. I needed to be able to show my innocence by way of further gun testing. So when I was in Stateville, I saw a newspaper article from the Chicago Tribune, dated 42100, written by Tribune staff writer Mara Kelly. The headline reads, Aiming for a Bigger Bullet Database. At that time, in the newspaper article, it showed an image of um, the back of a shell casing being ran through IBIS, the Integrated Ballistic Identification System. I was like, this can get me out right here. Because at my trial, the Illinois State Police, the individuals who testified against me, had basically discredited ballistic photography. Any type of ballistic imaging was considered to, um, well, at least uh, that they testified to, was considered to be uh, not relevant or inaccurate and not credible as evidence. Well, this is largely because my own ballistic expert presented ballistic photos which showed the gun did not match. But also what I found strange, I later found out that the Illinois State Police cameras were um, fitted onto the stereoscopes which they test the guns with. So obviously this was quite perplexing. And then when I saw the article, I'm seeing, I'm looking at digital imaging, which is actually pictures of ballistics. They're just high-resolution digital images. So when I asked for the gun testing in the year 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, circuit court denied my request for the gun testing flat out. And then I went on appeal. Ballistic testing was not allowed at the time because the law only allowed for DNA testing. Well, I read into the law where it says forensic testing, so I figured that this was forensics. But in doing so, the appellate court threw me a bone, so to speak. And that bone was, as elusive as it may have been, was that the only way that this type of testing could be granted is that if the actual statute was to be amended. Now, you have to keep in mind, up until this time, I still had not received the photos, which were my own defense exhibits, which show the bullets did not match. I had went on appeal, on direct appeal. The appellate defender had basically, I, I let him know that these pictures were missing from the record. There was pictures of tennis shoe prints which at the crime scene, which contradicted the state's case on direction and the type of footwear. There was also uh, the ballistic pictures, which were my exhibits generated by my expert. As a result, the appellate defender, when I let him know that these photographs were missing, he said, sure, I'll get them, I'll get them. So then a few months later, this is still like 1996, if we go back in time, I, I received the brief that he did on my direct appeal. He didn't send me a copy of the ballistic photos. The ballistic photos were not in the record, were not part of the brief. And so I really questioned, I, I really questioned his actions, like, what's going on? You know, here's pictures which show the gun doesn't match and I told you that these photographs were missing from the record and they should have been transmitted with the record on appeal as per Supreme Court rules 325-324 for the preparation of the record on appeal for defense exhibits and he said well I just used them for my own reference and I didn't refer to them I just used them for my own reference but the only way you'll be able to get a copy of those ballistic photos is with a court order because I sent them back to the state's attorney's office. So you can see 
right there how the system and how things were set against me. Here it was. I'm I'm impoverished. I have a public defender who is highly uncooperative, who doesn't want to use key evidence, who doesn't want to give me copies of my own exhibits. Now we move back up to, to the year 2000, 2001, 2003, where the appellate court says, hey, you know, the only way that this law or that we can grant this type of testing is if the law is amended. Now, I'm quite familiar with my status in life. I'm not a lobbyist. I don't have any money. I'm, I'm a nobody. You know, I'm, I'm less than nobody. So I set off to file a lawsuit against the Illinois State Police, Lisa Madigan, the governor. I wrote letters. I did all types of things for several years. I wrote probably hundreds, if not thousands, of attorneys. The federal court laughed my lawsuit out regarding the non-policy violation, and I had also filed suit against the Illinois State Police regarding I requested a copy of the, the rules of the lab and the curriculum vitae of the experts and to find out the actual procedure for gun testing and if this particular gun expert had been, had been admonished for, you know, previous failures or uh, inadequacies in his own job performance. That whole lawsuit was just thrown out of federal court. I was granted a strike as per the uh, Prison Litigation Reform Act. But I turned around and filed that same lawsuit in state court. Of course, the circuit court dismissed the case outright. But I went on appeal. And the appellate court once again threw me another bone. And in that appeal, the appellate court ordered that the gun and the ballistics, all the bullet evidence, had to be preserved. So now I had two firm things, even though they seemed elusive and still out of my reach. The testing was still out of my reach. The law hadn't been amended. The legislators were not answering my letters. Yeah, sure, we'll, we'll get right on that. We'll amend the law, sure. They weren't answering the letters at all. And the lawyers were telling me, nope, 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 sorry, can't help you. I sent out so many letters that I had broke the mail machine at Stateville, and they came and told me I couldn't make any more homemade envelopes. I had also sent out so many letters that came back return to center because the legal directory was so outdated that I had to file a grievance in order to get them to get an up-to-date Sullivan's legal directory in order for my letters to stop being sent back return to center. So about 2006, I'm still struggling. All my appeals to the federal court have been vanquished. All my appeals in state court have been vanquished. I was dead in the water 12 years after my conviction. I had nothing I had nothing going for me. I just so happened to possess a pair of prayer beads that were given to me by uh, uh, Dr. Nurdeen, who also had got me a grant to take paralegal courses via uh, correspondence courses through the mail. So I'm going to the chow hall. I'm wearing these prayer beads. And the warden, who, for lack of a better word, he's was a straight-up Dixiecrat. He was a southern gentleman who wasn't too fond of us Negroes. He stopped me. He sees these prayer beads I'm wearing outside of my uniform, and he stops me because it breaks the rule of everyone being uniform, everyone just looking the same, no individuality behind bars. And he says, what are those? And I snapped to attention. I said, 
these are prayer beads, sir. I'm posing because I'm in front of a whole bunch of people. I'm embarrassed. I'm on the spot. So he says, are you allowed to have them? I said, yes, sir. And he looks me up and down like, what's wrong with this guy? And he says, I don't like your attitude. And I said, we don't like your attitude either, sir. You brought much misery and suffering to the land. Boom, straight to seg, six months in the hole. Springfield, of course, told him to let me out after a month, but he said that MF tell me he don't like my attitude. He's going to have to do the whole six months. But at this time of being in segregation, it obviously freed up some some time because I was a jailhouse lawyer with abundance of backlog of people who wanted me to help them with their case because I was good and I had ethics and integrity in what I did and I actually tried to save people's lives. I wasn't just some scurrilous dude doing petitions for a bag of coffee and like a crash test dummy throwing them overboard to the uh, abandon of the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act or the state post-conviction petition laws, which uh, basically mandate if you're late on your petition, you're dead in the water. So with this extra time, I wrote an article, and this article went into a publication called Stateville Speaks, and the premise of the article is very simple. It was two paragraphs. The law in Illinois should keep up with the technology, and that the testing with IBIS, the Integrated Ballistic Identification System, which I referenced earlier, should be part of the statute. So that goes in, and of course there's no fanfare. Art Turner, a legislator from Illinois, winds up sponsoring my bill because the original bill that Bill Ryan had put before the legislators, which is still struggling now, is to grant parole for long-term offenders in Illinois. And the Illinois legislators are like, no way. So far, we're still struggling with this. So he gives them my idea. And as a result, my idea becomes a bill. And then my idea survives committees, survives the three readings, The governor of Illinois, he signs my idea into law, and that was 2007, October 27th. And my idea was simply to allow for greater forms of ballistic testing in a post-conviction setting. So at that point, everything changes. All the people who told me now know previously all the letters and everything. Now I have some actual basis. And an appellate defender had actually got me the ballistic photos, and I paid for them. And uh, so here it is. I have proof the gun doesn't match, and now the statute has been changed. So I filed the petition, but there's a little rule, a little, almost like a little hashtag, if you will, pro se gets no play. And I knew this. And basically what that's saying is that when you represent yourself in Illinois, and you're in prison, and you're fighting wrongful conviction and actual innocence, you won't get out of prison unless you have outside help. No one has walked out of prison that I've seen in the past 10, 15 years on wrongful conviction in Illinois without attorneys helping him. So I continued in my campaign to try to get attorneys. Finally, Northwestern Center on Wrongful Conviction and um, Jenner Block took my case, and Previously, they had both told me no, but I kept writing them with uh, due diligence as if they were my baby mothers. I wasn't giving up on getting out or trying to get help. So they took my case. 
Now, originally, the judge in the circuit court denied my petition, even with these lawyers. I was quite disheartened. One of my attorneys had said that he did not want to unleash a parade of horribles, as if my request for gun testing would just unleash all these litigants who would claim they, too, had been misidentified in ballistics. And that didn't happen. And the appellate court reversed his denial in the year 2011 and ordered that the gun to be tested with IBIS. Well, lo and behold, IBIS does a scoring system of 150 all the way down to 1. And my gun didn't even score 1. There was 300 pages of guns, over 1,500 cases of the scoring system that gradually went from 150 down to 1. And the gun that came from my apartment that was a registered firearm in my girlfriend's name did not score not even a one. So this was incredible, unbelievable. The Illinois State Police examiner couldn't believe it. So he tested the gun again through the IBIS system and comes back with the same results. You would think they would capitulate. You would think they would say, hey, let's talk, let's find out. No. They want to fight on. So my experts go get John Murdoch out of California, who's like a grandfather in the ballistic game, literally. He writes the rules for the uh, Association Firearm Toolmark Examiners Association. To be, uh, uh, to be a member of it, you must pass his test. And he tests the gun not just in two spots, or three spots, as the Illinois State Police had did, at 30 and 20% magnification. But he tested the gun in seven different spots, and he put together die cast. And some of the testing went as far as 20 times magnification. And he generated beautiful photos which showed the ballistics did not match. Of course, the Illinois State Police still would not relent, even when he had his other experts view the gun, and they came to the same conclusion up under peer review, which is part of the whole process. So the Illinois State Police is like, well, we'll test the gun again. So they go get a ballistic examiner who I found out later was called in 2007, when I was making such a ruckus trying to file my own complaints uh, under administrative law in 2007 and claiming that the Illinois State Police had uh, misidentified the gun, she had actually rubber-stamped the identification in 2007. She had got called in and was told that there was a guy in Stateville Prison claiming that there was a bum identification on a gun. She reviewed the file and said, hey, nothing's wrong with this. I did not know that this occurred until this year. I didn't even, maybe 2016, late 2016, December. So she comes back and she says, well, the bullets don't match, but I believe the shell casings do match. So now they have a problem because that testimony is inconsistent with the original examiner's testimony, which states he stated at my trial, this gun matched the bullets, the, the shell casings, to the exclusion of all other guns in the world. It was actually reported in the Rockford Register Star newspaper in 1994, the gospel, according to this expert. It was, it was big, bold headlines. 
Well, they had a problem. So they had to call the original expert in who tested the gun back in 1993 and testified in 1994 from the Illinois State Police. And I wasn't privy to that conversation, nor was I privy to the conversation that the Illinois State Police uh, higher-ups had with the woman who rubber-stamped the identification when she reviewed it in 2007. But I'm sure it wasn't nice. So the expert who misidentified the gun originally, and I'm putting it politely, he retested the gun. And he said, well, I can't match the bullets. But I still think the shell casings match. Now, mind you, IBIS says no match whatsoever, bullets or shell casings. My experts say no match whatsoever at high, high, high resolution, high magnification. So... Now we get around to this evidentiary hearing. We get around to this actual hearing, and they want to testify that somehow the bullets changed. Well, the judge admonished the prosecutor, stating that, hey, look, if you're going to testify the bullets changed, you have to come in here with some type of scientific evidence, some type of proof for your experts to hang their hat on, so to speak. Because he stated he looked at all the all the bullets, all the pictures of the bullets, everything, and that type of different wasn't due to mishandling or some other thing. This was a firearms-related non-match. So the prosecutor, who had not heretofore even mentioned the fact of degradation of bullets or mishandling of bullets, went out to go and get a report the eve of my evidentiary hearing to explain why these bullets changed. Now, bullets are they're made of soft metal, but it's metal. And so... His report that he gets from the Illinois State Police is basically about two cases. The Sacco Facente murder case, which is back in the 30s, I believe. And they were allowing people to see the bullets, but they stopped because they were afraid that so many people touching these bullets from the 30s to the 1980s would somehow change the ballistics. It was a very noteworthy case, very historical case. So they stopped. But mind you... The ballistics on the Sacco Facente case still matched even after almost 50 years of handling by examiners and trainees, etc. They also referenced the John Lennon murder case, which they stopped letting people seeing the, see the ballistics evidence in that case under the same assumption. However, once again, those bullets in the John Lennon murder case had not changed due to the multiple handling. In addition to this, this report and this testimony proffered by the Illinois State Police, they didn't even comply with the judge's ruling to say to testify to this change in ballistics, you must state where it changed and how it changed. That was completely left out. All they proffered was some weak anecdotal evidence to say, hey, look, well, the bullets did match, but now they don't, which I found to be a complete argument of convenience. So I won the evidentiary hearing. I won a new trial 10 years after the fact of this law coming into play, which I was very blessed to write an article while sitting in, in the hole in Stateville, <laughs> and it became a law. And so that is the essence of the story.
I was granted a new trial. State saw fit to file an appeal to the appellate court. The appellate court could take a year to rule. And because my case is a case of first impression, the Illinois Supreme Court could also take the case, which could hold it up another year. So I'm being held in this legal limbo on bond with various conditions, which are no cell phone, no social media. I must be in the house from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. I must call in daily to see a urine analyst if they want to drop me. I can't have contact with various people such as parolees, probationers, prisoners, those on court supervision. I can have no contact with them whatsoever. fact of the matter is that even though I've adapted to this, I could be here for two years waiting for a new trial unless the state folds its tents up and acknowledges it's wrong. We'll share more from Patrick about his case, the effects of long-term incarceration on his family, along with other issues in future episodes. Please visit our website for links to Patrick's various projects, including the Youth Justice Initiative, his art and writings, and the free Patrick Pursley Facebook and Twitter pages. Patrick wants to specifically thank the efforts of Tam Alexander with the Justice for Illinois Wrongfully Convicted. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.